0: Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello everybody, it is January the 20th, 2022, and I've got some bad news for you all. We live in a fucked up world. And that's not just my opinion, that's the opinion of my distinguished guest today who has made a very successful writing career out of the F word. His name is um, Gary John Bishop. He's a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, I think I'm one of the very few authors who isn't a best New York (laughs) Times bestselling author. I don't know how many of them got on the New York Times bestselling list. Anyways, the author of um, a number of books, including Unfuck Yourself, Stop Doing That Shit, Wise as Fuck, Um, wonderful titles, very beautifully produced, Stop Doing That Shit, Uh, as I said, Unfuck Yourself. Um, He's also the, the host of a very successful podcast, appropriately enough, called Unfuck Nation, and he has a new book out. It's called Love Unfucked, Getting Your Relationship Shit Together. It's just out. Um, and I'm thrilled that Gary uh, is joining us from Orlando, Florida. Well, Gary, uh, I'm not surprised you use the F word a lot if you live in Orlando, Florida. How did you end up there?
1: Um, well, I mean, a long time. First of all, thanks for having me. That was a brilliant introduction. <laughs> it's just great. Um I'm originally from Scotland but uh, but I I, never used to guessed, I know the accent never left me it's uh I still like to use it just because Glasgow ah the heart of yeah. oh yeah I'm a proper East End Glaswegian um but so yeah I've been in Florida for 20 something years and uh yeah it's my home now.
0: And then uh, you are a New York Times bestselling writer. How did you get to be there? It's hard to get on the New York Times bestselling list. Did you pay for it?
1: Oh, my gosh. No, I'm too Scottish for that nonsense. Uh, <laughs> no, I, I, uh, there is never really an aim of mine. You know, I've, I've really authentically only ever written my books to make a difference for people. And, you know, whatever platitudes or acolytes or whatever heck comes my way, it's all fine. But. Um, you know, my main aim is to make a difference for people and their lives. That's really it.
0: We did a show earlier today, uh, Gary, on um, Davos, Davos Man. And we had a New York Times, a real New York Times, not best best-selling author, New York Times correspondent, Peter Goodman, suggesting a lot of the, the wealthy people people in America, they, Mark Benioffs and Jeff Bezos, they're basically hypocrites. They they, they they say that they want to make the world a better place and they want to make people happier, but the reality right. is they're just making themselves richer.
1: Right.
0: What makes you genuine? What makes you authentic? I know you like these words, genuine, authentic. Yeah. They're kind of into your philosophy.
1: Yeah. I, I think um, whenever you engage with what I do, or I, I'm never at till I'm never out to just make you feel better. I'm really out to make you think. Um, because in, in my genre, you know, I could write books that are all just, you know, designed to kind of motivate you or or maybe even cheer you up or be positive. And I don't. I, I have you take a very kind of cold look at life and, and look at your own life and look at where it's going and how you're handling it. And um, I've never just bought into the whole like, like you know, I've sold millions and millions and millions and millions of books, and I've and I've never gone down the pathway of of like capitalizing on that and doing this thing and that thing and you know, it's just not what I do. I'm uh, I'm just out to make a freaking difference. I'm not out to milk people for money. I'm not out to, you know, none of that stuff. I mean, you can engage with my stuff and it won't cost you a cent. You know, um, we well, got to buy I'm, the I'm book, thin- yeah. Otherwise,
0: you wouldn't be a New York Times best-selling writer, right?
1: Well, I think that's what people grab onto, though. I think people read the books and they and they get that it is what I say it is. I'm not, you know, I'm not blowing smoke up your bum, you know. Like, I'm really, I'm really out <laughs> to make a difference with people.
0: Uh, I only got you on because I want you to blow some sn- smoke up <laughs> my bum. I
1: can't do that on
0: the, <laughs> the internet at the moment anyway, <laughs> Gary. <laughs> I like one of the things you say in your Twitter page. You say, if you can't introspect don't interact what does that mean
1: um a lot of what i do is to have you question right and, and ultimately what what i'm asking you to question i'm asking you to question yourself and for many people when when you get them to do that they start kind of getting very defensive or they just want to debate you over some point which is really Useless in my field. I'm not interested in debating you over a point. I'm interested in maybe presenting you with something that you can think about and use or not. So I say, if you can't come in here and introspect, then don't bother. You know, there's lots of stuff out there. Go find what works for you. But in here, what we do is we introspect, we think about, we question, we, we investigate.
0: Maybe you started college but haven't finished.
1: Are you looking? for
0: an accredited institution with a rich heritage in technology, look to DeVry University. Founded in 1931, DeVry delivers technology-focused education that you can earn on your own time with the flexibility of online classes. Save time and money with qualifying transfer credits and reignite your career path scholarships and grants are available to those who apply and qualify visit devry.edu forward slash future to learn more that's devry.edu forward slash future restrictions apply details at devry.edu You're very kind about my introduction when I half-jokingly said we live in a a fucked-up world. I I actually was only half-joking. It seems as if there's a lot of misery around. Do you think perhaps you're saying we should introspect, but do you think one of the problems in the contemporary age is that people introspect too much? They spend their whole time thinking about themselves, about what's missing from their lives. We're going to talk about the missing relationship of love or parental relationship or... Or, or, or relationship in work. But is, is there an argument to be made that we, we just simply shouldn't in, introspect because if we didn't, we wouldn't be miserable and the world
1: wouldn't be fucked up? Yeah, so I, I think it's everything in balance. I think what many people do, and, and you're absolutely accurate with this, is they dwell in it. So They're constantly dwelling and they're, and, and they're getting more and more and more internal. Um, life is happening out here. But but I think you can do both. I think you can get out here and impact the quality of your life while still working out some things for yourself. I think it's totally possible. It seems to me like there's one or the other. It's like go for it or work it out. Um, So I think there's room for both. Um, But I do agree with you like we're getting way too fascinated with our own belly button fluff. You know, it's just way too fascinating. when in reality, it's not at all, you know, we're pretty simple mechanism, complicated by situations and circumstances.
0: Well, let's talk about the new book, love, I'm fucked, getting your relationship shit together. Um, wonderful title, one best titles, I think of the year so far, they were only in January. Um, there's an entire industry around loneliness psychological misery, there's obviously an enormous therapy industry, there's the online dating industry. As we go to therapists more, as we become more and more obsessed with finding uh, a partner online, is that yeah. a, um, a cause of, of, of the current kind of existential crisis or is it a consequence or both?
1: and um. I, I, I'm leaning more towards the kind of the consequence of um, I, I really feel as if in the, maybe the last 50 years, you, you got to get like, you know, the th- first part of the 20th century which really people starting to kind of rebel against um, a very kind of stoic way of life, right? Like a very kind of um, culturally stoic world that we lived in. And um, certainly in places like the UK and the United States, very culturally stoic. Um, so there was this kind of rebellion that happened against that. And then and in that process, you know, we started to get, rightfully so, um, more concerned with self-expression and freedom and, you know, the freedom to express oneself and all that stuff, which is brilliant. But at the same time, I, I think that there are. There are examples of where we're just got it's just way too much and i think social media is uh as a reflection of that i will become so fascinated with self and and every little detail and every little yeah, and it's
0: appropriately um called social media because of course it's anything but social we're continually talking to ourselves it's basically just mirror, right? An era, right?
1: Right, well, there's that. And then there's basically people on there just pretending, right? I mean, it is a magnifying glass in many ways. Um, you know, living a life of pretense. Um, and, well, and, you, often, and,
0: and and your job is uncovering that pretense. Um, you say at the beginning of the book, uh, this book is dedicated to those who can no longer wait for the world to get its shit together and so must step up to the plate themselves. Welcome home. Um tell me about these people why can't they wait for the the world to get its shit together
1: well you know in my experience and a lot of the time in a lot of my career you know i've come across so many people who are just waiting to feel different you know their life is going along and they're waiting for something to change you know they're not they're not eliciting that change they're not demanding that change they're just kind of you know, when I get to this point, or when this happens, and when I do this, and when I feel this, and that, and I think there comes a point for many, many people in my experience um, where they can no longer wait. And, and in this case, it's in the area of relationship, they can't wait for things to turn in your favor. And what I'm laying out for people is if when you're ready to step up and actually take your life over, and that includes your life experience, your experience of life. Um, that's actually a very vibrant and inspiring and, and, and passionate way to live and, uh, you know, that really has a lot of what I talk about in my work, you know, it's, it's grounded in a lot of existentialist philosophy. You
0: are, you call yourself an urban philosopher, um, in -hmm. your bio, um, and you're influenced by the philosophies of Martin Heidegger. Hans, George Gadamer and Edmund Husserl, and you're producing your own brand of urban philosophy. Tell me about how Heidegger and Gadamer and Husserl have influenced your thinking.
1: Well, Heidegger, in particular, um, when I first started kind of getting into that, that uh, his writings and, and what he believed to be true. First of all, you know, I, the, most of the books that I've read on Heidegger. I've read some Heidegger, but I've read, a, I've read a number of books on people basically breaking Heidegger down because for me, it was a very complex read.
0: Who, 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 makes, who, who makes Heidegger accessible, coherent?
1: Um, there's a guy called uh, Simon Falks, I think his name. And he that was the first book that I didn't really get into. About Heidegger. It's called The Simple Guide to Being and Time. And, and uh, he, he really broke it down for me so that I could actually... It was almost like, like uh, he he allowed me to be able to access the work by seeing the way to breaking down what Heidegger was speaking of. But I'd never really considered myself a being, right? Like I'm a, I'm a, I mean, I was, you're a human being, I'm a human being, but I'd never considered what is a being, and the way Heidegger talks about being, and um, being Heidegger talked about being in the world, right, which was like mind blowing for me. Like suddenly if I set aside a lot of like what I'd come to understand about myself, which was, I'm this kind of guy, I'm that kind of guy, these kind of behavioral traits, these characteristics, this story that I have and this narrative that I, I live life with. But when I started to see myself like, Oh, I'm a being, and I'm always being something. And it was the first time I'd ever seen like, Oh, somebody says x y or z and i'm being frustrated and i'm living my life through this lens of frustration and i started to you know if you the more you get into either and in and, and definitely hustle but um you start to see like you have the ability to create
0: you know, actually, by the way did you model your beard on Husserl? Uh, you know, there was a very,
1: very handsome man. I think he was a lot freaking smarter than me, though. I'm really taking some pretty complex ideas and trying to give them to people in, a, yeah. in an everyday language, you know. Um, but, yeah, it's it really has been about trying to make sense of what it is to be a human being
0: what about and how to navigate life. Um... Heidegger, uh, Gary, an uh, incredibly controversial man. He was, of course, Martin. Uh, he was, of course, um, Hannah Arendt's lover. He was uh, a fellow traveler of the Nazis, um, mm-hmm. certainly very sympathetic to Hitler and to yeah. son of the Nazi philosophy. Yeah.
1: Um,
0: I mean, you're not a defend. This is not a book about Heidegger. But do you think there might be a connection between Heidegger's retreat from the political his obsession with this very abstract philosophy and um, a political naivety and irresponsibility on his part.
1: I, I, I find it hard to believe that he was naive about that. You know, I just, that whole thing just smacks of... Like well, then he even worse,
0: if he wasn't naive, then... Well, yeah, no, 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 no. Yeah, no,
1: I, I, I don't think you can... Have... Fall into the Nazi Party by accident, you know, <laughs> and and his whole thing That's what at the, the
0: time. Kind of say, I think, though.
1: right? Well, no, he would say, you know, that he felt as if his possession at the university was under threat, and that by joining the party, he was able to continue his work. Okay, um, but there were plenty of philosophers and 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 people around at the time. In similar positions who were very outspoken, who made their views very, very clear. He took another pathway. I don't know philosophically, by the way, how you can work your way out of that. But what I've been able to do is look at the man and whatever flaws he might have had and examine his work and examine some of the things that he said. A lot of the things he said I haven't even begun to broach yet but 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 that whole uh that whole idea that whole notion of what it is to be um has just fascinated me and actually led me on to some of those other philosophers and all the way through to Sartre. you know like allowed me to kind of you know for a kid i never went to college i was you know i came out of high school in glasgow and went straight to work so this was like a you know, like a garden for me to be able to discover these brilliant minds and brilliant speakers and brilliant thinkers, and somehow correlate some of what they were saying to my own life, and to have it make you know a a difference in the way that I lived, and and I that I continue to live, and a lot of what I talk about, I'm I'm certainly not an expert on any of those, any of those thinkers, any of those philosophers, but um. But they're an unbelievable resource for thinking and investigation, and you know, I, always con-
0: they were all very interested in language. Yeah, as all the early 20th century philosophers were, particularly yeah. the time. Yeah, what do you think they would have made of your very liberal use of the F word and the S word?
1: Yeah, I think it depends. Uh, so I think there are some of them would have called it um, sensationalist, but I think there, there there would have been others that would have appreciated the the freedom to be authentic the freedom to kind of be yourself um I, i'm really not a, for kind of like academic accolades you know i mean that stuff is fine yeah, i don't think you'll um, get it for
0: a book like no Life, no I don't think it's funny because you're not going to no. get a lot of uh, reviews in academic publications
1: no i'm not but it's I, funny curious,
0: that, so as well you your, your bio says you're producing your own brand of urban philosophy and I was intrigued with that. I looked up, as I always do when I don't know the meaning, I looked up urban philosophy on the internet and all I got was a um, a men's grooming salon. Mm, um, very good. Uh, and then I went and found something on Foucault and urban philosophy. Foucault oh, is one of Heidegger's great students.
1: That's right. What,
0: what do you mean by urban philosophy? What does that mean?
1: Um, well, for me, it was... Well, you know like i told you um i was born and and spent most of my my the first 25 26 years of my life i was in the east end of glasgow that was my home and um, and and there's like there's a kind of earthiness to that life you know there's a, there's an unmistakable earthiness if you like and so when i got when i started to read philosophy it's funny because one of so one of my problems with philosophy is ultimately it's really just interested in perpetuating itself. So it's just this kind of like toing and froing. And what I was out to do was to speak to people about these really brilliant uh, ideas and the way that we that normal everyday people would communicate right at the coffee shop or at the gas station or with their friends or whatever. So um, you know it's actually somewhere in what someone in my team who said oh this is like urban philosophy and i thought that's brilliant that really is what it's about it's it's the freedom to be able to talk about these things without um without analyzing it to such a degree that it doesn't become usable and um that's really been a big a massive part of what i'm doing
0: i am speaking with the great gary john bishop the author of New York Times bestselling writer. I've said it a hundred times, but I can't say (laughs) it enough. The author of his new book, Love, I'm Getting Your Relationship shit Together. Uh, Interesting new book about the lonely, the brokenhearted. I think it's going to be very valuable for many people. Uh, We talked in this first half of the show about Husserl and Heidegger and urban philosophy. Uh, After the break, I want to talk more specifically about the book, about the lessons and messages that Gary is giving to people who want to improve their relationship. So stay tuned, everyone. We'll be back in 60 short seconds. Hi, everyone. Andrew here again. I'm not sure if you're listening or watching or even reading about this keen On show. I certainly hope you're enjoying it. But I wanted to remind you that there are many different ways you can use to enjoy my Keen On show. The first, of course, is by, in a very traditional way, subscribing to the audio-only podcast. You can do this um, using Apple or Spotify or CastBox or many of the other traditional uh, podcast distribution platforms. We're on all of them, and if you want to access uh all the podcasts together you can go to my lit Hub page um, in their podcast section which is dedicated to all the interviews uh, if you're into watching this as opposed to simply listening um, if you follow me on twitter at aj keen you can watch these shows live uh, and you can do the same um, if we're connected uh, on LinkedIn. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not a great fan of Facebook, but Lithub is. And on their Lithub live page, you can watch these shows live as well. Um, in terms of uh, recorded videos, uh, not live, you can see all the shows on the Lithub YouTube page. So, Whatever your preference, whatever your taste, whether it's video or audio or text, there's no excuse for not watching or listening to my show. Now, back to Keenan. We are back with the New York Times bestselling author, Gary John Bishop, the author of a new book, Love Unfucked, Getting Your Relationship Shit Together. Um, at one point, Gary, in the book, you say... Uh, sorry, that's the wrong quote you say in the book, in the book. You want one of those amazing, fulfilling, and profoundly connected relationships The one you'd read about, heard about, seen, or even dreamt of, don't you? Why do we want those relationships, Gary? Why aren't we happy on our own?
1: I I think you, you, you know, you've, you've, you've answered your own question. Um. There's a part in the book where I do talk about this, like most people get into a relationship, a love relationship, because there's something about that person or this union here that fixes something about themselves right? or some aspect of their own humanity or, you know, like a gap or a hole or a missing piece, that when they meet this person, it seems like that's taken care of. So then there's this kind of yearning. It's like, you know, at a very profound level for us as human beings, you know there are various times in our lives when we're when we're confronted by that missing piece. So being in a relationship certainly the beginning seems to placate that experience a little. Um, so then you can get why some people get very desperate. But um, but but the book is definitely you know I, 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 that that idea that there's something about oneself that I haven't resolved for myself. That now is going to play out, and that's happening with two people, um, creates really like the battleground where a lot of relationships are are fought over.
0: Yeah, you talk about um, we all want that relationship, but here's a, a nice, healthy dose of oven fresh reality for you. I'm quoting you: uh, you don't know shit about having an authentically great relationship. What is Gary an authentically great relationship and i assume you can't have and uh no relationship is great if it's inauthentic is that correct
1: that is correct right but but our relationships the way we go into them is with a catalog of inauthenticities coming with us what does that mean a
0: catalog of inauthenticity inauthenticity.
1: so um so if you think of an inauthenticity like um like in in terms of that i'm going to talk about here um people sometimes look at the relationship their parents had and they don't want that relationship. That becomes the model, that becomes the basis of what we're about to do. Therefore, the whole thing is based on a no reality, right? It's not based on me and you, it's based on me and you and this set of unseen, unspoken ideals. you,
0: you, You put it nicely, you say in the book, people settle for a level of despair they can tolerate and call it happiness that's a very existential thing to say i mean
1: yeah yeah and, and i think that's very much i mean the, the divorce i mean people go on about the divorce rates, and i talk about it a little bit divorce rates for marriages is, is about 50 50. i think the presumption is is that the have, you been married, of- have you been divorced married i've never been divorced i've, I've been married for um 25 years uh, this year and and it's funny because I don't use my marriage for what I'm talking about here. I live what I'm talking about in my marriage, but it's not where it's not where this book came out of, you know. It was like, oh yeah, like this is this is more like a a, a human being's approach, if you so like. What
0: do we do to make a successful twenty-five or twenty, twenty-five, thirty-year-old marriage um work gary and not just settle for it do we have to when you say authentic does does that mean it's a perpetual kind of therapy session do we have to be honest do we have to reveal ourselves what 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 is the what are the mechanics of an authentically successful marriage
1: yeah i would give you a very a very simple answer but one that would require require whoever's watching this or listening to this requirement to really think um, at the beginning of every relationship, whether you're present to it or not, whether you're keyed into it or not, you you are creating something there. You're, you're up to something. You've got something in mind in the first part of your relationship. That experience of being creative and being up to something is diminishes and diminishes, but eventually becomes completely absent. So um, what it will require you to do is to continually create this union to continually create the environment in which you both get to get to speak to one another and but 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 it's but it's challenging because there is a lot of baggage and there are things from the past and there are things you need to deal with about yourself and so on and so forth so it's like a combination of those two things you have to be up to something your marriage and your relationship yeah there has to be something you have in mind here and and you'll have to refresh it and revisit it and but it includes like yeah there are some things some old ghosts or maybe some old beliefs that i'm that i'm going to have to address and if they need to be let go of i need to let them go and and to, and to really be curious about this thing as opposed to having it be not something else or even worse by the way trying to make it something else do you have any children I have three children. Yeah, three boys. How old are they? And my oldest is 16, the youngest is seven.
0: And how are your relations with them?
1: Brilliant. I mean, just brilliantly authentic.
0: Well, you have this section on your rela- I, I, I get. I'd like to get your kids on and see whether they agree, but you say yeah. first you've got your relationship with your parents, both in the past and in the present. Yeah. And we all know how you relate to that one can fuck you up. There was of course Philip Larkin's famous poem about parents fucking us up. As parents, how do we how do we improve our relations with our children? And indeed, as children, how do we improve our our relations with our parents? How do we unfuck love when it comes to the 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 parental? Sphere. brilliant
1: brilliant. i'm actually writing a book <laughs> about a very subject um because the whole notion of being a parent is is a kind of weird one um it's a hard thing to do.
0: i have kids i i yeah it's it's the hardest thing i've ever done
1: oh for sure and, and 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 you've nailed it right there by the way it is the most challenging thing you will ever do in your entire life not one of the most challenging the most challenging thing you will ever do in your entire life. And because most parents, um or an awful lot of parents, the kind of context for doing a job is, I hope I don't fuck this up. Right? Like, that's kind of like what's in the background. Like, I better not fuck this thing up. And so there's this kind of burden of trying to do the right thing. Am I doing the right thing? And did I screw it up? Gonna... And there's kind of two things happening in that dynamic. One is the parents doing this. And the other one is the kid is judging you for everything that you do. And I think as a parent, the first thing you got to give up is that you should try and change that judgment. They're going to do what you did, which was observe what your parents did and judge it for themselves. Right? Like you're doing shit. You're doing well. Right? Um, and there's, it doesn't matter how much you might try to think you can manipulate that judgment. It's Sartre would have said, you know, people had their own fucking meaning, right? It's like, they had their own meaning. And so you might feel as if you're doing something good for them, but they, their interpretation is something totally different. How was your
0: relationship with your parents?
1: It was, it was um, typically Scottish for my first 40 years and then wildly brilliant for the last decade of both of the lives like brilliant just loving and and what's amazing
0: Scottish Presbyterian hard
1: <laughs> well well it was very much like you know I'll show you that I love you but don't fucking expect me to say it yeah
0: I was talking to a, a friend of mine in New York uh, we were talking about his childhood and he said my mother and he was trying to sum up his mother he said my mother never hugged me how important yeah. is, I mean, obviously when it comes to love, sex is important, but how important is the physical in getting our relationship shit together?
1: I mean, I, I think if there's anything in the way for, for for you in terms of hugging someone you love, I think that's something you need to look at. It's not about the hug, it's whatever's in the way. Um, but, but, you know, as I practice with my sons, for instance, yeah, I'm a hugger. I mean, I'm. I'm going to grab you. I'm going to hug you. I'm going to hold you. We um, live in
0: Florida now, Gary John.
1: Right, right. That's right. There, don't they? That's, that's they right. Do. Uh, so, it's, and and I and, I'm, and I and I'm big on saying I love you, but not just saying I love you. Like you know, can you pick? Can you pick that bag up and give it to me? And I love you. It's really like I'll, I'll take the moment to tell you that I love you. Um, but but it, so that's critical. But then you should realize. it even as a parent, right? Like, so for that guy who said, my mom never loved me. Well, I don't know if he
0: meant it that way. I think he he was suggesting that maybe his mother didn't know how to hug him. Or the, right, or no, that but, that but in his mind. Relationship. I don't think he was saying that she didn't love him, but she didn't yeah, know how to articulate. Yeah, I'm a spoke.
1: Yeah, I'm a spoke. So, so, but he, in his mind, that hug would have made the difference. So he'd even kind of step back a little bit and say, well, that she didn't hug you. What did you make that mean about you, about her, about life? That might not even necessarily be true, but in your mind at the time, in your life at the time, it seemed like this is the truth. So that's part of like what I what I what I did with my own parents. Like I started to look at all of the things that I'd picked up and gathered and, and kind of nurtured as true about that. And when I could set them aside just to bring a little bit of curiosity to the thing and started to see, well, you know, my mom would do this and my dad would do that. My mom was like this and my dad was like that. I started to see aspects of them that I'd, that I'd never quite let in or didn't want to be part of what I'd brought together. Um, but but I think, you know, we're coming back to my magical word again. with my own children, you know, authenticity is everything with me. I, I never... I tell my children frequently, you know, I don't have all this shit worked out. You know, being your dad, I don't have it all worked out. I'm still working at it. Out. And we're gonna do what I just said, right? But but I haven't worked it all out. And um, you know, sometimes I'll even ask for their patience while I work at it, out. you know, like if they've done something that I don't approve of or whatever. Um, I, you know, I need time to work it out with them. So um I think letting go of the need as a parent. That you're supposed to have all the freaking answers um and then i really believe in the robustness of my children my children are robust they're 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 loving they're caring they're compassionate they're vulnerable and they're robust and and i it's like i really feel as if those are all the pieces for a human being like you know you must be robust and have a heart, you know, like, well, and, and
0: that. Be really robust and have a heart. Gary, Joe Bishop certainly is both. We've done pretty well, Gary. We're almost at the 35-minute mark, and we haven't used the C word, COVID, but I have to introduce <laughs> it. Um, we're living in a time where a lot of people have fallen out of love with their work and with their office. You talk a little bit of in the book about your relationship with your boss and your co-workers. Are they assholes? Are you an asshole back? Uh, then don't hold your breath for that next promotion. Why are people struggling so much when it comes to relationships at work? And why is the office the new frontier, the new battlefield often when it comes to relationships?
1: Um, one aspect of, of the C as you called it, is that it's one of these kind of forced changes. So in generally in life, there's two kinds of changes. So there's the one that's forced upon you, and then there's one where you're just kind of sick of something or done with something, and it's time to make some kind of significant change. But in modern society, particularly in the West, though, we haven't really had that specter of something that presses on and changes the way that we live. Um, we haven't really had it since the end of the Cold War. You know, we have the little bits, but you know maybe 9-11 or something. But COVID has been this big universal thing that you kind know, of lives like a press on us. And you know, I come down to the same thing. I think it was Jung that might have said this, but you know what you, you can really see all the kind of machinations of a human being when they're pressed, right? When they're when 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 life or a situation or a circumstance is pressing a human being, you know, like, the not so good stuff comes out. And and I think in some ways, uh, COVID made it in terms of that. Like people are pressed right now. So in our places of work and at home, um, people are finding their capacity, the, the room that they have to allow mm. life to happen seems to be getting really compressed and really, like, squeezed on. And so one of the things that I've been telling people is, you know, you can have grace for other people and give them a little bit more room. And it's OK. Grace for yourself. Like you're a human being, you not a freaking robot. You know, you're going to get pressed, You're going to get like, right. It's OK. And even if you say something or you make a mess, go clean up. It's OK. You're a human being. Have a little bit of freedom to be yourself in situations wow. like this. Um, And I think it's universal, and I've been granting people grace and giving myself a little bit of grace um, because, you know, I don't underestimate the pressure or the weight of this thing at all.
0: Well, we are speaking with Gary John Bishop, the urban philosopher and New York Times bestselling author, new book, Love and Fuck, Getting Your Relationship Shit Together. He is also the reincarnation of Edmund Husserl, (laughs) the uh, early uh, early 20th century German existential philosopher. So you get a lot with Gary, John. Um, congratulations on the book, Gary. Uh, what else should people be reading? You're in Florida at this time. Should people reread their Husserl or their Heidegger or their Gadamer or their Foucault or perhaps there's something else you you would suggest oh
1: reading? Um, no, none of that, <laughs> <laughs> right? None of that, but, uh, None of that. Um, I say one of the things that came to mind was uh, obviously Viktor Frankl's "Man's Search for Meaning," which is such a replenishing read for me. I just, yeah, I I just think admit, it's, a- it's
0: a shameful thing to admit, especially publicly. I've never read it, but a lot of people have suggested I really need to read that book. What's so great? Right. Big deal about uh, uh, Frankl's "Man's Mer- uh, Man's Search for Meaning," his nineteen forty-six
1: book, Viktor well, Frankl. One of the brilliant things that I, that 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 I, that I just loved about this book was that he was able to find his own experience in the face of despair, and he felt as if that that was what made him survive um, a concentration camp. Right? Is and, it a Holocaust and, book? Yeah. Well, yeah, but it's this background of like you really get like the humanity of it. Like it's not so much. All about the holocaust and which is significant enough on its own mm. but what he's really talks about is like this this kind of triumph of self over circumstance and um and it's compelling it's compelling the way it's written but so uh I find it so uh, when I, the first time I' ever read it I found it so relatable like yeah like when you get into those spots in life and, it, and it, he would talk about the people who died and it was like it was like there was no point for them to live. You know they were just left with like there was no reason for their existence. And so they died. And he managed to maintain that sense of himself. and he went on him, like you saw there, like developed this thing called logotherapy, and, you know, but he had his own his own way of of empowering people and and inspiring people to live great lives. Well, Gary, thank
0: you so much. It was a wonderful conversation. Um, we need to get you back on the show, maybe with my old friend, Julia Hobsbawm. She has a new, rela- a new, not a new relationship, new book out about office and work. So maybe get your wisdom on how to establish meaning in work. But your oh, yeah. new book, uh, Love Unfucked, Getting Your Relationship Shipped Together is just out. Bound to be a New York Times bestseller. You are a New York Times bestselling author. Uh, as well as, uh, as I said, uh, Heidegger, Husserl expert, uh, living uh, reincarnation of Husserl. Thank you so (laughs) much, Gary. Keep well. And we'll talk again in the not too distant future.
1: Thank you so much. Brilliant conversation.